Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Snapshots in and on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History. Well, I was a little nervous last week about airing the episode with Jeff Tui, not because I didn't think people would like Jeff, but because it's a little bit different from our normal format. And the response I got was awesome. So I'm glad that everybody really enjoyed that. Jeff's an incredible guy. I, I love just chatting. He's one of those guys. He kind of reminds me of Greg Deberge that you could just talk hockey with. It doesn't necessarily need to be about his career. You could talk X's and O's. You can talk off ice, whatever it may be. He's just one of those guys that even though he's in it, he loves it, and he loves the history behind it. So thank you to Jeff again for coming on. I hope that everyone checks out his podcast, the Unnamed Hockey Podcast. And more importantly, I hope he winds up back in hockey. I know we talked off the air a little bit, and he said there's some opportunities coming up for him. So hopefully we'll see him back either in the National Hockey League or in the Ontario Hockey League soon. After two weeks of doing some different stuff, this week we go back to our regular format of reviewing one snapshot in a player's career, and you guys asked for it. Somehow I found him. We got Gino Odechek joining us this week. Gino was fantastic. And talk about a nice guy. You couldn't ask for anyone better. We ended up having a nice 45-minute interview or so. Part one, we go ahead and talk about the 93-94 regular season and the first round of the playoffs when they played the Flames. And during part two, we cover the rest of the playoffs all the way up to the Stanley Cup Finals. This was an important interview, not just for me, but for Gino. Gino actually asked, usually when I reach out to guys, I say, is there a certain topic you want to cover? And most guys are like, no, not really. I, I don't really care. My career is my career. We can really talk about anything. Gino, on the other hand, was the first guy who said, this is what I want to talk about. He wanted to review the 93-94 Stanley Cup playoffs run. And the reason I included the regular season in there as well because there were a few things that happened during this regular season that Gino was involved in that I really wanted to document and kind of get his side of the story. One of them being the Wayne Gretzky incident that took place during the 93-94 regular season. Wayne Gretzky, at the time, untouchable in the National Hockey League, and Gino thought he tried to knee him, and as a result, he went after Wayne. That was unheard of. I can't really think of too many other players that did that, and Gino actually goes into it. He discussed it at length with me. And I guess I'm so intrigued by this incident because I don't remember any player ever going after Wayne Gretzky, really, especially a guy like Gino Odechek. But Gino felt he was done wrong and needed to do something about it. So I can't blame him for it. Gino is also the first guy to talk to me about Pat Quinn, who is who I think of when I think of the stereotypical hockey coach from the old school days. I just imagine him with a cigar hanging out of his mouth wearing his hat, sitting on the bench. I remember seeing him with Toronto and Vancouver, just a hockey lifer. And I enjoyed hearing from Gino about Pat Quinn, because like I said, he's a guy I really don't know much about other than what I read in the hockey news and saw on TV. And for those that have followed Gino over the years, there was a health scare a few years ago. He had an issue with his heart. I'm proud to say he's doing great. And you'll hear it on this interview. He sounds wonderful. But before we cut to that interview, I kind of want to do a State of the Union for Snapshots in Hockey History. We're getting towards the summer months. The playoffs are rolling. And by the way, did anyone else notice the Islanders are up 3-0 over the Penguins? God, what a good series. 
I still can't believe the Penguins are down. But side note, as you guys know, I get off topic all the time. But anyways, back to the State of the Union. A lot of people are asking me kind of where are things going to go with this or what my goals are. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure. Originally, I started doing this because I wanted to introduce newer hockey fans to older players that maybe they weren't familiar with. I had no idea that we would get the caliber of players that we have gotten for the show. I mean, so many players, George LaRock, Jim McKenzie, Darren McCarty, and now Gino Odechik. So many players that I never really thought I'd even be able to get a hold of, let alone get on to come on the show, and, and they're doing it. And I really, really appreciate that. And then we've had some newer guys on, Matt Bradley for one, Jamie Rivers. So the show has definitely evolved from what I initially thought it would be, but I do still like doing that snapshot idea. So. My thoughts are the show is going to continue. It's definitely, as long as I'm having fun, as long as people are listening, going to be around. My only thing is this summer, I might take a few weeks off to bank some interviews because it is hard doing something every week. And the other thing that I might do is instead of going from two episodes, we might do everything in one episode. I'm curious everyone's feedback, if maybe it would be good to release everything on a Monday or on a Thursday. It just, it would be a little bit easier on me. So that way I'm not editing twice a week, not doing two intros, two outros every week. Instead, I'm doing like one and one. But I'm really, really pleased with how the show has evolved. And I'm also glad that it's not a stats hockey podcast or an analysis podcast. This is more for stories. There's some great podcasts out there. I think Spit and Chicklets does the best job of stats. I love Uncensored with Matthew Barnaby. And I like the new NHL one. Um, I can't remember. It's called Executive Suite. I can't remember who hosts it. But really, really good. So in the meantime, I see the, the podcast continuing to grow. I have no idea where it's going to go. But I can see it continuing to go along this model. And we also might add in some new things. Like I was recently contacted by an ECHL owner who listens to the podcast. He's a new owner in the league. So we might do a piece where kind of we document his experiences throughout the year. I'm curious if people will think that's cool or not. So let me know if you do. Please send me an email at brettsmall84 at gmail.com. You can tweet me. You can hit me up on social media. But this isn't why you tuned in. You tuned in to hear from Gino Odechek. So let's cut to that interview. Thanks for checking us out. Enjoy part one of our interview with Gino Odechek about the 93-94 Vancouver Canucks run. And I guess the year before, you had come off the playoffs and were a healthy scratch for all but one of those games. And, and it sounds like that was a pretty pivotal moment in your career. Can you kind of walk me through that playoffs before the 93-94 season? Yeah. Well, I, I was more trained just to fight. I was... Uh ready to fight for a minute, a minute and a half. And uh, I wasn't in good enough physical condition to play a regular shift during the playoffs. And I really wanted to make myself a complete player to be able to play in the playoffs, be able to play at the end of the games and stuff like that. So at the end of that series, I uh, I told Pavel, I'm going to work out with you this year. And Pavel was always the fittest player. And he had a personal trainer, which happened to be his dad, a former uh Olympic swimmer and his training was really really hard but I did the training with him and I ended up scoring 16 goals the next year I've heard stories about Pavel's dad I've heard that he is a strict tough guy what kind of workouts would he have you guys do uh running do 20 sprints of 100 meters with 10 seconds interval breaks uh you'd run 5k to start the workout play tennis do weights, go home and take a nap, and then do weights for an hour. Um, 
at night and then play basketball. <laughs> so it was the training was six days out of seven, two days a two days two workouts a day. On that seventh day, did you just collapse? Did you and Pavel just sit on the couch all day? Oh yeah, we were dead. I, I can only imagine. I definitely. I know you've talked a lot about your relationship with Pavel, and I and I'd like to get into that in a little bit more. But you know, the Vancouver Canucks had kind of have a little bit of a disappointing season and, and going into 93, 94, you have a couple teammates and I'm curious if they really made a difference in how you could play. You had Shannon Tasky and Tim Hunter on the team. And both those guys were known for being tough guys. And you yourself were a very tough guy and, and had that enforcer role. Did they take some pressure off you to allow you to develop your game? Well, yeah, we had uh, Tim Hunter, Shannon Tasky, we had Robert Dirk, we had uh, Sergio Monoso. So we, we were stacked in toughness and and started playing on the fourth line. I got a chance to play up on the first line with Pavel and uh, it gave me a chance to develop as a player that season for sure. Well, it didn't take long for you to develop. November 18th, when you played Brett Hall in the St. Louis Blues, you scored two goals that evening. And after the win with the Canucks, head coach Pat Quinn told Elliot Papa, the Vancouver son, that you were playing with a lot of confidence right now and that he was really happy for you. Do you have any memories of this game? Was this? I think this was your first two-goal game in the NHL. Yeah, I don't really remember that game. I remember the season, but uh, I don't remember game by game. But Pat was always the guy that guys that played for him. Always had a career year. If it was me or Ty Domi in Toronto or Pavel in uh, Vancouver, he was always the guy that gave you a chance every every night. Even if you're on the fourth line, you got ten minutes of ice time and you had a chance to do something special every night. Some coaches, they play for four or five minutes, and you can't do anything. You can't get a hit. You can't get a scoring chance. There's just not enough time. But uh, I, I say if a guy's going to play on the fourth line, he should at least get 10 minutes of ice time to have a chance to do something special during the game. It sounds like you liked Pat Quinn as a coach. What kind of coach was he? Uh, he was a player's coach. He gave guys tons of opportunities, but if he got mad and you crossed him, you were in trouble. <laughs> uh, guys respected him, but he was a tough man. Was there ever any time where you got in trouble and you were in Pat's doghouse? <laughs> yeah, we were playing a game against uh, Calgary, and uh, Albert kind of slashed me, and I speared him in between the legs. Uh-oh. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened, but they gave me a 10-minute penalty. We were up 5-0, and uh, Calgary scored five goals on that 10-minute power play. Oh, and, uh, Lucky for me, Dave Babbage scored a finished his hat trick, scored in overtime, but when he came out of the, from the game, he was like, where is he? Where is he? I was, I was hiding in the side. <laughs> I, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> So during this season, and we're not going to go game by game, as I don't expect you to remember every game. I, I do want to bring up some things, though, as I think it might bring back a couple of memories. You were roommates with Tim Hunter at one point, And in Los Angeles, January 16th, 1994, there was an earthquake that rocked all of California. Yeah, I remember it. We were all sleeping, and uh, the building started to shake. And we all ran outside, and all we could see was gas lines bursting oh we were living God. near the airport and you could see fires everywhere and the bridges falling apart it was a really scary time but uh there's two guys the two goalies kurt mclean and 
Okay, wait more. They're so drunk, they never even woke up. <laughs> <laughs> TVs, TVs were falling off the where they were situated, and those guys never even woke up. Well, I guess Tim Hunter was your roommate that night and evidently ran downstairs in his boxers just to get the heck out of there. And uh, you confirmed in the Vancouver Sun when they asked him about it, you went, no, no, I was in the room with him. He did that. <laughs> Pretty big quake. And just a few weeks later, you're actually back in California. And I know you're not going to remember every game, but you might remember this one. You played against the Los Angeles Kings, and the unlikely matchup of the game was Gino versus Gretzky. You and the NHL superstar skirmished briefly after the end of the game, and you were quoted later in the sun as saying he stuck his leg out and tried to trip you. Excuse me. At that time, I think Wayne Gretzky was kind of off limits, and that didn't stop you. You were neat, and you were sticking up for yourself. After the game, what was everybody's reaction in the in the Vancouver Canucks locker room? What was Pat Quinn's reaction to that? Well, the, the LA media and the Vancouver media, why did you, why did you hit Gretzky? I said, well. Because yeah, they let Nick Sorley go, right? Because he asked for too much money. I said, if uh, Wayne would have took seven million instead of eight, he'd have enough money to pay Nick Sorley, and he wouldn't have to worry about guys <laughs> like me. <laughs> so really, the very next game we, the very next game we play LA, Marty's back in LA, and of course we got to fight. But he never even told me thank you for bringing him back to LA. Wait a second. Wait a second. You get him his job back indirectly and he won't even thank you he didn't even thank me no all right we've got to get marty on the podcast and ask him about this but but gino <laughs> backing up a little bit with gretzky what was the reputation like in the league i mean i of course never played in the nhl nor will i ever but i'm kind of curious around that time was was the impression don't touch him or is that kind of this myth that's been created all these years later no everybody didn't want to touch him. me he wasn't a dirty player. He was a player that played a clean game, and uh, he'd whine to the referees every now and again. But he wasn't—he wasn't a dirty player. He wasn't somebody that you wanted to go after. Fair enough. You'd eventually square off with Marty McSorley, uh, as we just touched on, and he is, from what I grew up, one of the toughest guys I ever saw fight. From your experience, was he one of the toughest you ever fought? Yeah, he had great stamina. He was in great physical condition. Like you could outpunch him and. Uh, I'll throw him faster, but at the end, he'd be right there, and he wouldn't tire out. So it was always a tough fight when I fought Marty because he was in such physical condition. So would you put him as one of the maybe the best fit fighters you ever fought? Uh, Dave Brown, Marty McSorley, those were really, really tough guys. Ty Domi was pretty tough, too. He was a small guy, but he had great balance. The oh. meanest of the all. The guy who would try to rip your head off every time he fought him was Tony Twist. Yeah, he, he had a hard punch, and he, he had bad intentions when he threw a punch. And, of course, I do know that you and the St. Louis Blues eventually did square off the entire team, not just Tony Twist, but we'll save that for another episode. Moving yeah. forward, uh, the Canucks ended up winning this game after you fought Marty McSorley against the Kings, and, and we touched on these two goalies. You had Kay Whitmore, and you had Kirk McLean. And Kirk had been kind of struggling during the regular season. Was he kind of considered the number one, or was Kay challenging for that spot at the time? No, no. Kirk was always the number one. There was no doubt about that. Okay. He had some tough games once in a while, but he was the number one. There was no doubt about it. In mid-February, the team took a three-day holiday to Vegas together for a few days of rest and relaxation. And 
I've had a couple other players on in the past that have told me about their trips to Vegas with teammates, and I'm not looking for details, but one thing I've always wondered, is that something that's organized by the guys, or does the organization organize that for you guys? The organization organized it for us, guys. We had a great time. Me and Pamela weren't gamblers, but we went to go see a lot of shows and uh, had a good night of uh, having a few drinks with the boys. It was a special time. Uh, I really, really was thankful the organization did that for us. It really made us bond. And I know you and Pavel were very close, but did anybody else come and hang out with you guys, or did you two do your own thing? Uh, we hung out with everybody, but mostly we did our own thing. We were young guys, single. Everybody was married, so it was a different crowd. Yeah, for sure. After this trip to Vegas, the team gets back on the ice to prepare for a game against uh, your arch rivals, the Calgary Flames. And the fists actually were flying in practice. You and Dana Merzen got into a little bit of a fight in practice. And I don't know if you recall this incident, but the St. Louis Blues this year had something like that happen in their practice. And it really turned the team around. How do you feel about fighting during practice? What's your thoughts on that? I felt terrible about it. <laughs> Me and Hank were, Dana was a really competitive D, and he would clash you and hack you. He played like he practiced. But I always respected Dana a lot. He was a true warrior. He fought whoever and everybody. And he played, he blocked shots. He, he cleared the front of the net. He was a great warrior for us. Was that looking back in your career? And I don't know if this happened often. But, but was this, I, I guess I should ask this in a different way. Was this one of the few fights of your career where you had a fight in practice? That was the only time it ever happened. So you're not a supporter of that and a proponent of that by any means then? No, 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 no. You can fight everybody else on everybody else's team, but as an enforcer, you're there to protect your teammates and make sure that they got skating room and they feel safe. You don't want to be trying to intimidate your own teammates. Yeah, I just, as an outsider looking in, and that's all I am as an outsider, I don't claim to be an inside guy that has all this knowledge, I would just think that that's when you want to rally with your teammates and not go against them. Um, but I guess the yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to, I mean, your teammates are there to support you. They, they really push for you and they're hoping every time that you fight that you don't get hurt and that you do well. And, uh, you know, they respond, you do, you get a big fight and they respond and score a goal. That's what teams, uh, good teams do. So really, uh, I'm really against fighting your own teammates. In another attempt to kind of shake things up with the team, I mean, you had that fight, and that wasn't, it doesn't sound like intentional to, to try to get the team going, but Pat Quinn does something intentional around this time. He makes a big trade. He trades Craig Janney, who had been a holdout, for Jeff Brown, Brett Hedekin, and Nathan Lafayette. What were your thoughts on this trade? Do you remember kind of what your reaction was? It was a great trade for us. Lafayette did a good role for us during the 93-94 playoffs, and Hedekin was a top 4D playing 20 minutes a game. So it was a great trade for us. Dave Brown, I mean Dave, what was Brown's first name again? Jeff Brown. Jeff Brown. He uh, was a power play specialist and a good guy. also. These guys really helped us in 93-94. The season's winding down, and you had an awesome campaign. You put up 16 goals. And, uh, I mean, I got to ask, what was the secret sauce? How did you put up so many goals this year as opposed to the prior year? Well, I, I went and worked out with Pavel and his dad, and I showed up in great shape. And uh, because I was in state, they gave me a chance to play with Pavel. And 
you know, when you play with star players, you get a lot more scoring chances. So that made it a lot easier for me to score. Overall, though, the team kind of had a little bit of a rough campaign that year. You guys were one game over 500 during the regular season. 41, 40, and 3 was your record. At the end of the season, you were even quoted in the Vancouver Sun as saying, let's not kid anybody, we had a disappointing season. We needed two wins the last weekend against Anaheim and San Jose just to move up a notch, and we lost both games where they didn't have their best lineups. So I ask you this, going into the playoffs, you're in the seventh seed. What's kind of the team's general attitude going into the playoffs? Well, we had nothing to lose. We were playing Calgary. It was the best team in the conference. And, uh, you know, let's just go out there and have fun and do the best that we can. And next thing you know, we're down 3-1. And uh, guys were taking long shifts, not coming off, taking stupid penalties. And Pat Quinn got mad and hit the Gatorade bottle and it went flying everywhere. Oh. And that woke everybody up. We came back. We beat them three straight in overtime, all three games, and uh, we were off to the races. It was a magical series, especially for the Vancouver Canucks. And game one was on April 18th. And, you know, as you said, you went down 3-1 in the series. But that first game... Oh, my God, it looked like you guys were going to sweep the series. It was a 5 nothing win. Trevor Linden, one of the Canucks' all-times great, was heralded for his effort. He had had a mediocre regular season but really came alive during this game. Um, I've never spoken with anyone that played with Trevor, and, and he, of course, was a longtime captain. What kind of captain? How would you describe him as a, as a, a team captain uh, when you were with the Vancouver Canucks? Well, he was great. He made sure the team stuck together. He organized events uh, to get the team together with their wives and their kids. And he was really good uh, in the dressing room, but he was a quiet leader. He was a guy that went out there and played his heart out. And uh, kind of like Bo Harvat is now for Vancouver. Sure. He was not a big stalker, but he comes to play every night and he gives you everything he's got. At the end of this game, with about a minute or two left, the Calgary Flames head coach Dave King put Sandy McCarthy out there, Ronnie Stern, and Paul Cruz to go kind of rough up Trevor Linden, Jeff Courtnall, and Yurke Lume. A lot of people were surprised because that was kind of a lopsided tilt. I mean, you had some pretty tough characters in McCarthy and Stern and Cruz. You weren't out there for that, nor was Tim Hunter. You see something like that go down. What goes through your head when you're on the bench? Uh, you're pretty upset, you know, uh... Usually you don't see fighting in the playoffs. And now we were really surprised that they put that lineup out at the end of the game. So when the game the game was already over, there's there's nothing they could do to really change the game. So the one thing you hate as an enforcer, when there's a minute to go and the coach heads you out and uh, you're going rough people up, but the game's already over. Right. I'm, I'm always wondering if you're going to fight, fight, Hit the other team's best players, uh, cause havoc, and then force the other team's enforcer to come after you um, to try and wake the team up. But I was never a guy who said, I'm going to fight to show how tough I am or I'm the toughest guy in the league. I was always a guy that said, you know, we're going to fight um, if it helps our, our team win or we're not going to fight at all. I think that's why you were so well-respected is you weren't a dirty player. You didn't go out there and cause trouble. You were there with a role, and, and you played your role to a T. After this first game, Calgary gets back in the series with a 7-5 to win. There was a bright spot, though, for the Vancouver Canucks, and that was Cliff Ronick. He is the all-time playoff leader in goals after this game with 18. 
I know he was a shorter guy. What type of player was he, though? He was a pig ball. He, he was small. And in, uh, in those days, he didn't have a small player. But he could turn on a dime, and uh, he he just loved to get points and score. If you ask him today how many shots he had, how many goals he had, how many assists he had every season, he can tell you he just loved to score. And uh, he loved to play hockey, and he was from Vancouver, Burnaby to begin with, and uh, it was his hometown team. He played his heart out. Oh, my God. Fans must have gone crazy for him up there. Yeah, they loved them. Games three and four back in Vancouver, and as you mentioned, it does not go well for the Canucks. After game three, you're actually scratched for the remainder of this series. Do you recall why you were scratched? They wanted to go with a more offensive lineup. Uh, Calgary had tough guys, but they weren't playing at all either. So um, I decided to go with an offensive lineup, and uh, that's the way it went. You know, I, it was no big surprise. They, uh, they scratched tough guys all the time during those days because there wasn't as much fighting. Gino, the team's going into game five at this point. You're down 3 nothing. Was there ever a seed of doubt? Did people start to go, you know what, this might not be meant to be? Yeah, there was for sure. <laughs> you know, uh, Calgary had a great team, and uh, but something happened. Just magic started to happen, and once it started to happen, it just kept going. Jeff Cortnall really kicked off this magic with an overtime goal in the first period. I don't really hear a lot about Jeff now, and I'm kind of surprised. He put up some big numbers. What were your experiences like with Jeff Cortnall? Uh, he was a tremendous player. He was a big game player. The bigger the game was, the more he showed up. And like Pavel, he was one of the most fit players on the team. He used to work his bag off to be in shape. And he could stay on the ice for two minutes and still... Uh, be flying around on there if he was for 30 seconds. He was a great player. I've heard off the ice he had an interesting personality and was known for pranking people. Is that true? Oh, he was the biggest prankster ever. I remember uh, we uh, we played a game and there was a guy on our team, Jose Charvela, who had a Corvette. Jeff Cornell jacked his car and put wood underneath the wheels. Oh, God. So when Jose, we come back at 3 o'clock in the morning because we were flying commercial those days jose turns his car on the wheels are spinning he's like my transmission's done my car's wrecked (laughs) now gino i gotta ask you i did anybody ever over your career try to play a prank on you like that no no it was pretty good jeff got me a couple times he sold my pockets so i couldn't get to my wallet one day (laughs) here's what i'm imagining i'm imagining you at dinner Everyone's sitting around, and you going for your wallet, and you can't get it, and everyone's just making fun of you because you won't pay. <laughs> Everybody knew what was going on. Courts was the worst. Everybody loved him. He was a great prankster. They kept the team together and kept the team loose, and uh, everybody loved Courts. Game six, return to Vancouver, where the Canucks win in overtime as a result of a goal by Canucks captain Trevor Linden which, of course, leads to this classic Game 7 matchup. And during this game, Pavel Berry takes the helm and scored this amazing overtime goal. Everybody kind of had this negative feeling about the Canucks, I feel like, at this point. How did the city react when you guys made it to the next round? Everybody just went crazy. They uh, started towel power. They took it uh, from uh, 1982, where everybody had white towels, and yep. the building was full. Everybody thought sky's the limit because we beat the top team in the conference. 
Everybody knows at the end of each interview, I kind of summarize things or I talk about one quote that kind of stuck out at me. I cannot believe the line he gave me about Marty McSorley. I just thought that was great. Hey, Wayne, if you'd taken a million dollars less, I wouldn't have tried to fight you, bro. Come on. Anyways, want to thank Gino again. I think everyone will enjoy part two. And, and one thing I forgot to touch on, though, was kind of the state of the Vancouver Canucks at the time. Prior to the 93-94 season, from what I can tell, it looked like fan interest was at its lowest of lows in Vancouver. They'd been eliminated in the first round several years beforehand, and it seems like they couldn't put a winning product together on the ice. And this was around the time when Edmonton had just won a couple cups. Calgary had won the cup in 89. So I think the Vancouver Canucks kind of felt like the stepchild of the Western Canadian teams. So for them during this run and for them to win and go on, I think really, really brought some awesome energy to the franchise and kind of reinvigorated several of the players. And we get more into that in part two. We also, of course, talk about Pavel Bure. And if you're not familiar with it, the relationship between Pavel and Gino is probably one of the best in hockey. And I think so many people are fascinated by this because it's totally the odd couple, a Russian and an Algonquian fighter who's tough as nails. It's like a sitcom for the 80s. Anyways, we'll touch on that and so much more in part two on Thursday at 8 a.m. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you following us on social media at Snapshots and Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. Please consider leaving us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show or also tell a friend we're really trying to spread the word and continue to grow. Talk to you soon, everyone. See you Thursday.